HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by DMV Black Restaurant Week, bringing culture, education, and good food to eaters in the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia area. You're listening to Item 13, an African food podcast, and I'm your host, Yom Akuaku. Every week, We'll delve into the delicious world of African food, including chefs, curators, and vloggers. Here's the show. Welcome to the show, Dominique. I am excited to have you on. We're going to be talking Liberian food. We're going to be talking about your background a little bit, um, the work you're doing with spices, and your catering um, company. And also, I think I want to touch on, um, we didn't talk about that earlier, but I want to touch on how you're doing um, with everything that's going on with COVID and all of that. One, personally, and then also just in terms of the business. So, um, a lot to talk about in 45 minutes or so, but let's get, <laughs> let's get into it. So, I'll start with you. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Um, where are you from? All of that yeah, well, stuff. thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to to be on the show and to talk a little bit about myself and my background. Um, so I guess, who am I? I am a first-generation American. My family is from Liberia. Um, I was actually born and raised in Maryland, so I grew up here. Um, spent some time in New York for undergrad, where I studied hotel and tourism management at NYU, Uh, Moved out to Vegas, um, was working there as a restaurant manager for some time, and then relocated back to the East Coast to pursue um, a path in culinary arts in a more professional sense. And so I started cooking with the Four Seasons, and then I even launched um, a catering company, Talbert Hospitality. And that's what kind of got me to a lot of the point of where I am in terms of the culinary world and my artistry. And um, now I'm currently an MBA student at GW, um, going into my second and my last year. So I've done a little bit of a lot of different things. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Congrats on the MBA, too. Like, I, I, I that seems like a, lo- a lifetime ago. I finished my MBA like five or six years ago now, and that was no small feat. So 
I can't imagine trying to do that now, especially in this environment. Um, so it's interesting to your story was interesting to me one in that a lot of the people that I interview uh, on the podcast who are um, who are who actually cook um, don't have professional training or they didn't they sort of stumbled into it. So you did the hospitality thing right away. Do you have any sort of early food memories that made you or any memories from childhood that you think? sort of pushed you in this direction Um, because I like I said there's a lot of people I speak to that sort of stumble into it Uh, it sounds like you had a clear path to the to the extent that you even went to school for hospitality yeah I mean for me I grew up with aunts who were very very great cooks cooked often for the family and for different events and I mean I think one of my most fond food memories was I used to go to one of my aunt's house a lot growing up and she would she was a great cook or she is a great cook and she would i remember one time we were in her house like bob marley was blasting she was like frying fish and making pepper sauce or something and then she had like a rum cake baking and i think that was just like my favorite food memory ever because you're bringing together all these different flavors and all these different sounds and smells in the kitchen and then you have like good music playing and it's just a whole vibe it's a it's a whole ambiance And so when I think of food and kind of what I do with Talbert Hospitality in terms of the pop-up events I host, I try to recreate that same type of experience where people can enjoy a vibe through food, good music and conversation, that kind of stuff. And then for me growing up, I always used to watch the Food Network and I used to have my cousins, they would make fun of me and be like, oh, she's always watching the Food Network. Why is she always doing that? But now they're always asking me to cook for them. So it's just funny. I, I don't know what really intrigued me about cooking necessarily being so young, but it's something that I've always just always being in the kitchen, um, especially the way that I learn is from seeing and doing. Um, I never went to culinary school officially. So um, the training that I received was from professional training from the four seasons um, specifically. And then what I've kind of been able to pick up over the years from cooking with different chefs, cooking with home cooks. And just watching TV, watching Netflix, <laughs> YouTube, and I guess the Food Network. So, yeah. Yeah, like I'm interested in that because you've had extensive experience. I don't know how many years this is, but you've done, you know, you mentioned, you know, your restaurant manager in Vegas and then cooking at the Four Seasons. What was that experience like working in a professional kitchen at the Four Seasons? Was that your first time or like how did how did that even happen? Um yeah, it's a it's a it's a funny, it's an interesting story because I actually wanted to go to culinary school instead of going to get a hotel and tourism management degree, but having African parents, you know, they're kind of strict. They're, <laughs> they're like culinary is not a real thing. You need to go study business yeah. or something else. So hospitality, hotel and tourism management was like a specialized business degree, which is what ha- which was a happy medium between me kind of pursuing my interests, but also getting an actual degree. And so um, throughout my career in undergrad, I interned in China. I did some like study abroad sessions in um, Cuba, interned in different places throughout New York City and just, you know, connecting with different people over the years. Um, And the Four Seasons was a company that I interned with in Shanghai. 
and then also in Baltimore, um, both in food and beverage outlets. And so when I moved out to Vegas um, and I was thinking about leaving and relocating and kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do next, but also keeping in mind that I knew I wanted to do something more creative and probably getting into the culinary sense. I had a chef who I met and worked with at the Four Seasons in Baltimore who came out to Vegas literally two weeks before I was supposed to leave. And she was like, you know, there's some positions open at the property. It's for um, a prep cook. So it's like not not necessarily the bottom in the kitchen, but one of the most starter positions in the kitchen. And she said, you could learn a lot there. The pay isn't good, but you'll definitely learn. And it's a good way to go get your hands hands dirty in the kitchen and not necessarily go to culinary school. And so that same night I applied for the for the position. I got a call the next morning from HR and the person from HR was actually somebody I knew who worked at the Four Seasons in New York and somebody I had met through at NYU for like recruiting for different things. And so she was already familiar with myself and um they were like, "Yeah, when you come back to the East Coast, just let us know and we'll schedule an interview for you." And they were really pushing for me to get into management again. And I was very adamant about wanting to do culinary. And they were all like, are you sure? It's a lot of hard work. The pay isn't good. It's it's a different type of thing. And I'm like, no, I want to do it. And so I just spoke to different um, property managers, some that I was already familiar with because I had interned there and I had worked with them before. And they were like, all right, so you can start. We 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 know who you are. We we know you'll you'll do the work. And so that was kind of it. They took a chance on me, but um, it's funny how things kind of align based on who I met over the past few years. Yeah, and when you, I mean, I guess all those people are warning you, but even from like watching, you know, Netflix shows or the Food Network, it's it sounds like working in a professional, or it looks like working in a professional kitchen can be really tough. And you, you see chefs like Gordon Ramsay and how they treat people in the kitchen. I don't know if you had that sort of experience going, you know, even that sense of um, trepidation, I would say, going in and knowing how people are treated in the kitchen. I, you may, I guess maybe you're fueled by your own passion or desire to learn how to cook professionally in that way. But I wonder if, that sort of crossed your mind as well. Yeah, I mean, the kitchen is a tough it's a tough environment. And for me, I started as a prep cook in that kitchen. And so prep is essentially, you know, cutting up vegetables all day, making the stocks and sauces, soups and all of that for the cooks to make cooks to use for service. And it's like doing the brunt work. So some days I would be shucking oysters for like hours or chopping up onions or making all kinds of things. And so that in itself is tough and it's a lot of labor. Like you're 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 lifting up heavy pots, like 80 quart pots, 100 quart pots, you're taking things up and down stairs. And so that is physically demanding on you. And then once I got onto the line, I'm now, you know, prepping for service, which is a different type of work. It's a more of a mental challenge because you have to now more so work work with more speed because now you're servicing the customer. You're not necessarily servicing your teammates. And so you're servicing the customer. And then there's also a finesse to it because you want to make sure whatever you're presenting looks good for the customer to eat and also tastes good as well. And so you're working with multiple stations because maybe um, I'm making a salad on my station, but somebody is making an appetizer on another station and both of those two items have to go out together. And so it really teaches you about teamwork. It teaches you about organization. 
um, preparation and really it's a mental game. Um, my chefs, fortunately, I didn't, I, I didn't have, I wasn't working with chefs who were, who were cursing us out or had like these terrible attitudes. Of course, when it's, you know, busy in the kitchen, it's hot. Um, people are messing up sometimes, you know, tempers can, can occur, but it was never anything where I would say I was working in a toxic environment, which was fortunate for me. It was definitely high pressure and stress in a sense, because, you know, you were, you are working against the clock, but, um, I was lucky enough to have a good a good leadership team, um, which I'm grateful for. Yeah, that's amazing. You don't you don't hear that too too often. And so then, how did you or when when and how I guess did you decide to transition from you know working for other people to doing your own thing? And I know I think I think it started with um, your hospitality group started with these Sunday dinners, right? Um, so, I mean, when I was in college, I used to host these things called Sunday dinners and that was just like very informal, but a kind of way for me to get my friends together and friends of friends together around food. Cause like I used to be the one that cooked all the time. And then eventually we made it into something where we'd say, okay, we're going to invite these people over. I'll do the food and then everyone can bring the drinks or the dessert or whatever else. And so that's how the Sunday dinner experience started. Um, in terms of when Talbert Hospitality started and me kind of going into entrepreneurship was while I was at the Four Seasons because literally my salary from being a manager to being a cook was cut in more than half. And so not having excess extra funds was something that was challenging for me. And then also being on prep, I was like, looking at those cooks coming in to cook for service. And I'm like, okay, I want to do some of that stuff. So how can I be creative on my own? How can I compose dishes for other people and kind of get their feedback on it? And so that's why I thought to launch Talbert Hospitality to make some extra money and then also to try out some of the creative things that I was seeing um, being in the kitchen. And so the first event that I did with Talbert Hospitality was actually something called It's a Crab Feast. And so that's a West African inspired crab feast um, to kind of pay homage to my to my Liberian roots, but also being from Maryland, where crabs is a big part of things. And then crab feast, because all of the pop up events I do are are served family style. It really allows people to connect with um, strangers, argue over the last bite of food, really like get in there and kind of engage how it's talking about creating this whole experience around food, music and conversation. And so that's that's what launched I launched the company with. And then I would also do like private catering gigs. And then I did a couple Sunday dinner series. I did one in Baltimore, one in Brooklyn. Um, I do something also called Dine and Dish, which is bringing women together specifically around different conversation topics and food. And so um, I try to do those when I have some time, at least two to four times a year. Wow, that's that's a lot, and that all sounds really good. And I, well, hopefully post COVID, <laughs> I really hope I can get to enjoy some of that for sure. Um, so then, I guess speaking of COVID, I, I'm sure that has changed. You know what you're able to do with with the hospitality piece, right? Are you doing anything different now? How has that affected your your business? Yeah, COVID affected everything. I mean, even before COVID, me starting my MBA was a big um, risk in a sense because I knew that was a huge time commitment. So once I started my MBA, I really wasn't taking clients as often as I was before, Um, maybe doing things once a month as opposed to 
four times a month or whatever else. And so when COVID happened, it's really, I think I'm one of the people who is more hesitant to really be around others. And I was just like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not taking on gigs and everything that I had scheduled from like February to May eventually got canceled. And as the months came on, it was like, okay, this is canceled. This client doesn't want to do this. They're going to reschedule this from, um, from the next time. So I haven't done any catering gigs since February, I want to say. Um, but actually this past weekend I did, it's a crab feast, but I offered it as a to-go service. Um, so people could pick up and, um, kind of recreate their own feast. I included a list of nearby parks from the pickup location, uh, Afrobeats playlist for them to, to listen to. And, you know, had some of the same food that I would have been serving in person, but just allowing them to recreate their own. And so that was something, that kind of service was something that I had never done before. And um, it presented its own challenges in a sense, (laughs) Um, but definitely some lessons learned. Um, And so I think me doing those kind of things will be what will happen in the future because I'm I'm not comfortable with catering. Like I don't need to be in other people's homes right now. Yeah, I can cook in the private kitchen and then have people pick up or like take it to their car as I did with It's a Crab Feast. And then the other beautiful thing about COVID, in a sense, is that um, it's allowed me to slow down and focus on my other company, Michon Spices. And so that's something that I actually developed from Tolbert Hospitality because from that company, I make all the sauces dressings, marinades, spice blends, everything from scratch. And um, usually I'll have clients ask me um, to leave different things for them behind so that they can cook with throughout the week. And so when I started my MBA program and I was um, attending different entrepreneurial sessions and just, you know, taking more business classes, I was like, how can I, how can I look into a product-based business instead of a service-based business and learn how to scale that? And so... I tested it out with Michon Spices, basically launching with four different blends, three savory and one sweet, and then seeing how it would be received by other people outside of my clients. And so I sold like 200 jars of spices in the first month and a half or two months. And then I entered into a new venture competition with GW. And then I just finished up a startup, summer startup accelerator with GW's Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. And so I have a website for Michon Spices now. I have the companies incorporated. I filed a trademark for it. And so, you know, that's something that I can do in the midst of COVID to still kind of share this uh, African diaspora flavors and food experience, but allowing people to do it in their own homes instead of me kind of coming to them. That's amazing. I was going to ask you about the spice line, but you've said everything there is to say about it, I guess. I think one of the questions though that I wanted to ask was the origin of the name Mishan. Mishan is actually it means food in Pele. So in Liberia um, there's 16 different tribes and each one speaks their own dialect and so my father he's he's Pele and so just kind of you know paying homage to my roots again trying to do something different and you know with the spices being inspired by the African diaspora I said what can I kind of bring in there and so I like how it sounds. Um, I don't speak any Pella other than knowing how to say that. <laughs> and, um, so that's what I went with. Um, so it translates to food spices in a sense, but Mishan is, um, that's that's the origin of the name. Yeah. And then um, do you mind speaking about, because you have four um, spice blends, right? Do you mind speaking about each of the four really briefly? 
Because um, there's one that's called Better Than, and I like wanted to understand why you call that <laughs> Better Than. And then the Coffee Cumin, I'm also pretty curious about. Because I like coffee in general, and then I also like coffee like in food too. So I thought that was pretty... Yeah, so better than being from Maryland, Old Bay is huge. Um, and so when I started the crab feast, I wanted to have create my own spice blend for crabs instead of using Old Bay. And so better than it used to be called better than Old Bay, but I didn't want to get sued by anybody. <laughs> and so I just shortened it to better than. And then so it is a West African version of, you know, and a, a seafood spice and so it has some smokiness to it it has some like um cayenne and habanero peppers in it so you get a little bit of spice it's not as salty but it gives some well-rounded flavors and so it's called better than because i think it's better than you know all the all the other stuff that's out there and um i know a lot of people use it it's basically a, a good all-purpose seasoning so you can use it on french fries you can use it on fried chicken you can put it i know people who cook liberian food with it all sorts of things. And then um, coffee cumin was something I actually developed for clients um, who liked lamb a lot. And so um, not only, you know, thinking of what I can do, something different, coffee is very prevalent in different West African countries in terms of what we grow there and distribute and harvest. And then thinking like what goes well with lamb. So the coffee and cumin mixture gives a really nice smoky and um, depth of body flavor to lamb chops. Um, but also it's good for different stews and things like that. Even if you can't grill, it does give a smoky flavor to whatever you use it on, which is really nice. Cool. And where can you describe it all so deliciously? Where can people find it if they want to buy it right now? Yeah, so it's, I have a website. I'm on I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. But the website is called MichonSpices.com. So M-E-S-E-A-N Spices.com. And so I have two other blends. There's the Peruvian garlic, which is heavy in garlic and is kind of um, paying homage to the Latin American side of the African diaspora. It's good for roasted poultry and greens. And then something sweet is something that I developed based on what I mix into cocktails. So anytime I make cocktail mixers for pop-up events or for clients, I do a mixture of sugars and spices. And so that's what that blend is has in there. So you can make cocktails, you can make like French toast and pancake batter. Um, I know people make like savory foods with it as well. So you can do all kinds of stuff with the with that spice. All right, I think this is a good time to take a short, quick short break. And then when we come back, We'll go into the topic of Liberian cuisine and then talk about what's next for you, like your MBA program. You mentioned a summer accelerator. We can talk about that. And then um, what's next uh, post-MBA. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by DMV Black Restaurant Week, bringing together black restaurant owners in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia area with a mission to keep black food culture alive. But DMV Black Restaurant Week is not just about a week. It's about making an impact in the community all year round. By advocating for local black-owned restaurants, DMV Black Restaurant Week aims to use food as a force for good. In 2020, they're planning signature programming, 
like the Business of Food and Education Conference, cocktail competition, and more. Learn more about how DMV Black Restaurant Week is promoting culture, education, and good food at dmvbrw.com. So we're back, and it's time to talk more food, <laughs> Liberian food specifically. Um, I personally don't have that much experience with Liberian. The only Liberian food I've had is Liberian jollof, and I I don't like jollof is a very <laughs> And this is a very personal and can also be a touchy subject. So, like, that's that's all I will say about Liberian food I've tried. Um, I'll have you explain to people, like, maybe the staple foods or the things you should try if you, you know, you go to a place that has Liberian food or you ever visit Liberia. Yeah, I mean, so, <laughs> jell-off, yeah. Liberians make good jell-off rice, I, I believe so. Um, okay. <laughs> no comment. I think the only people who can touch our jollof are Senegalese people. So I'll just put that on the record um, for those who might be curious. <laughs> like I said, no comment. I've had Liberian. I've had Liberian. I've had Senegalese. I have. I've had Ghanaian. I have. Have had Nigerian. I've had Sierra Leoneans also do a jollof. I had Sierra Leonean. So yeah. I. I will. I don't want to start any. Inter- West yeah. African wars right here, so we'll leave it at that. I think if people have have might if they might have had um, Sierra Leonean or Guinean food, but not Liberian food, those those cuisines are similar in a sense to Liberian because we border and we share a lot of oh, the same yeah. cuisines. Um, I will say those two places though they cook with a lot more okra in some of the foods and then also more um, ground pea or ground peanut, whereas we don't do um, some of that, the combinations that they do. But it is similar in a sense. But um, Liberian food is very, it's heavy plant-based. Of course, we add a lot of meats to it. And depending on what region you're from of Liberia, um, you'll cook with more seafood or more dry meats or um, goat meat and stuff like that. Um, some of my favorite Liberian dishes, I love, I love, uh, okra sauce. So it's okra. I like okra sauce. You, they usually put a lot of seafood on okra sauce. Okra sauce and tabagi are two of my favorite, um, Liberian dishes. So there's a lot of seafood in them. It's cooked with red palm oil. Um, the okra does have, we cook it so that it has like a little bit of a slimy texture and you can eat that with, um, with rice or fufu. Um, the tabagi, it's made either with, it can be made with okra or it can be made with beans. Um, I, I prefer either one. I don't have a preference. Um, we do spinach. We do cassava leaf, which I think a lot of people have heard of. Cassava leaf has a more hearty texture than, you know, potato greens in a sense. We cook collard greens. We cook a lot of, a lot of plant-based things that has meat in it. So, I mean, if we don't cook with red oil, it's just made with regular cooking oil. Um, some things are eaten with fufu. Other things are eaten with rice. Um, there's a saying in our culture like, oh, you don't eat red oil on Sundays because it's kind of taboo for whatever reason. So that's something that some people don't do. Um, because we are on the coast, there's a lot of seafood, a lot of fresh seafood there, which is really good. Um, you can get some good fish. I really like barracuda in Liberia. You can't really get barracuda elsewhere outside of 
in a lot of different places because it has like it's said to have a lot of mercury in it and some different places uh restrict that but liberia has some good seafood they have huge lobsters i did a pop-up event there i think two years ago now and like the lobster head was the size of my hand which was like the biggest lobsters that i've ever seen um so the seafood there is really good and really fresh um we don't eat a lot of dairy in our in our food um traditional breakfast will be like cassava plantains or yams with you know some type of gravy whether it's smoked fish gravy which is smoked smoked salted herring or with corned beef or whatever fish gravy or whatever else um so I don't know. Does that describe yeah. Liberia? Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's very eye-opening to me. And I think I read somewhere some time ago that um, like, because we don't in West Africa in general, we don't bake a lot of like, and a lot of sweet foods. I mean, bread outside of bread. But I heard that baking is uniquely Liberian in the context of West Africa. Anyway, the Liberians bake a lot. I don't know if that's your experience, but I feel like someone had mentioned that to me. Um. I mean, I don't, I don't really, I don't think Liberians bake a lot compared to some other cultures, but I couldn't say compared to other West Africans. So we make um, shortbread, which is basically biscuits in a sense, but it's sweet, sweet, sweetened biscuits. And so sometimes they also make something called cassava bread, which is like the shredded, shredded cassava. And it's, it's really good. Sometimes people mix it with coconut. Um, We make rice bread, which is made from plantains or bananas mixed with uh cream of rice and some other stuff and that's that's gluten-free um we make donuts or kala i think some people call it uh puff puff or both fruit yeah like we fry yeah both fruits uh puff puff that we fry yeah so we make that and you can make that just with like plain flour. Some people put um, plantain in it and we usually eat it with um, pepper, like fried pepper sauce. Um, so, I mean, there's not a lot of baking that we do, but maybe it's more than some other people. And then some. Yeah, maybe are- when compared to other West African countries, I guess um, it sounds a lot more more than we do liberians make some good pepper soup too so i think a lot of west africans that eat pepper soup liberians make that as well oh do you make it is it a tomato based like pepper soup um some people make it differently so some people put tomatoes in it some people don't some people will make ground pea soup so they add in um, a little bit of ground peanut to it um it just it depends on who you are yeah because um there's a liberian um Librarian Ghanaian actually uh, cook here in the Seattle area. And uh, my husband and I had ordered pepper soup. He wanted Nigerian pepper soup. And so we had ordered pepper soup from her. And what, what we got looked more like a Ghanaian light, which it was great. It tasted fantastic. But I think in his head, he associated like Nigerian pepper soup to be like to- tomato less versus like what we call light soup. Um, which it looked like so that's why I was wondering about that yeah I think it does look more like light soup because the way we make it will like cut up onions the pepper some people will put ginger in it and then you add the different smoked meats so if it's smoked turkey ham hocks or whatever else your smoked fish and then you like cook that down to to make the broth in a sense and then you'll start adding in your meats so if it's chicken or goat meat or if you're just doing all seafood and then some people will add some tomatoes in it to give it some more flavor. 
Other people will add the ground pea if you want to make it more peanutty. And then you can, you eat it with fufu or you eat it with something we call dumboy, which is, um, it's like fermented cassava that's made into fufu. And, or you can eat it by itself. It, it, it's like per, personal preference. That all sounds so good. Like, I guess you grew up eating it at home and then making it, but I don't, do you, are there places like in the DC area in New York that you could get Liberian food? So not in D.C., there hasn't been a restaurant, a Liberian restaurant in some time. There's I think some people like set up like small cook shops every now and then. There was a a restaurant in New York that was open for a while outside in Queens, but they closed down maybe two years ago. So right now there's not a lot of Liberian restaurants. Right now it's just you (laughs) dominating the Northeast, essentially. So no, not not necessarily me because my my cuisine focus isn't Liberian strictly. It's more so Liberian fusion. So fusion, yeah. I'll mix in the flavors of Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, every now and then I'll do some like strict or more traditional Liberian foods, but not so much. There is um there's a chef uh, chef Dalmas Hare. He has a company called Lib Foods, so you can order he like mails food out to people and he does like all the liberian traditional dishes it's not a restaurant but um if most people who are looking for liberian food and if their family isn't cooking it or they don't feel like cooking it they'll order from him no that's cool i will look that up there's a lot of people that are doing that these days is mailing mailing food around the country so um so with the little time we have let's see if we can do this i wanted to touch base very i guess now that we've almost run out of time it's going to be very briefly because i don't know how many people know sort of the the connection of liberia to like the african-american population in the u.s um especially in the context of everything that's going on and as you were talking about liberian food and you mentioned things like collard greens or shortbread it made me it reminded me again of that connection. And as I think about the current space we are in right now, I don't know if you have any thoughts on, especially the interaction between, because um, you are first gen, so I'll just use that, first gen Africans versus African-Americans versus African immigrants in this space where we're trying to uplift all Black people. Um I bring that up because for those that don't know, Liberia started as a country from freed black slaves and freeborn blacks from the U.S. And from what I understand, even in that initial like move to the continent, there was also some initial, and I don't know if that's still the case today, but initial friction between um, people that moved versus the local or native Liberians at the time. And so it was interesting to me as I thought about interviewing you, that connection. And I don't know if you have any thoughts. And you may not have any thoughts, which is fine. But I just thought <laughs> that it was an interesting connection. Yeah, I definitely, I have some thoughts. Um, it's a very nuanced nuanced argument, if you want to say. Um, so I won't go too much into in depth. And I'm not a historian or anything. So I can only speak for my personal experience but yeah so um liberia did it's a country that was i guess or is habitated by descendants of freed slaves from america or free black people from america um 
and yeah, that that did cause some friction in the country and has been, uh, I guess, the root of some of the issues in the country. Um, and so you would call those descendants of uh, freed slaves, Americo Liberians, and then indigenous Liberians for those who were there um, prior to them coming there. And I think, I guess, in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement and just me being a first gen, it's always, it's interesting because I always feel like I'm in this in-between phase um, with those who do know about Liberia, oftentimes Africans, and I've gotten into different situations, they'll be like, oh, you're Liberian, you're not a real African. Because um, the thought is that all Liberians are from America or from elsewhere, and so we don't necessarily count. And then being Black in America and me you know, being proud to be Liberian, I tell people often, and they're like, okay, well, you're not really Black either, so you don't really fit in here. And so it's always been an in-between thing. Sometimes um, it takes a lot of education, too, because, you know, having African parents, they're not who who were immigrants here. They didn't grow up here either. They're not well versed in all of the structural norms and institutions in America that affect black Americans. And so sometimes it's about me educating them as well as educating myself because, you know, I grew up in America, but I felt that I grew up more Liberian than American in a sense. Um, and then it's also weird because whenever I go to Liberia, they're like, you're not really Liberian because you were in, a, you grew up in America. So it's just like, it's always this balance and this juggle of people saying, oh, you're not this, you're not that. Um, or you don't have the right to say X, Y, Z. And, um, you know, constant education. And then even as I said, my father, he's Pella. My mother is more, is Americo Liberian. And so, and actually my father is half, half. So his family were descendants um, of those who came from South Carolina. And then my mom's family is actually descendants of people who came from Barbados. And if you go to Liberia, you'll, you'll find a lot of Bayesians who are Liberians or Liberians who came from Barbados and same thing, Liberians who came from South Carolina or from somewhere down South. And so speaking of South Carolina, if you know, I know what's become more popular in the food industry when you look at pioneers like Chef BJ um, Dennis or um, uh, Michael Twitty, they're really um, harping on, you know, Southern cuisine and how it has African roots. And especially in South Carolina with the Geechee Gullah people, when you look at or when I look at some of their cuisines, I look at Liberian food and I'm like, this is the same thing that we eat. Like there's something called dry rice that we eat in Liberia that's like uh, parboiled rice with smoked fish, maybe some fried okra, fried fish, and then we drizzle red oil over it. There's like a dish that Geechee Gullah people that looks just like that, or even the okra that they make looks just like, I think they make gumbo that looks like our okra sauce in Liberia. And so when you see pictures like that, it's like, okay, you see how food has traveled across continents, across uh, oceans, based on the slave trade um, and based on the movement of black people across across the world due to slavery. And so, I mean, it's interesting. Um, I definitely do identify with the Black Lives Movement. I'm a black woman in America at the end of the day, and I was born here in America. So the life I live in America, they don't care if you're... If you're Liberian yeah. or you're Nigerian. Or no you're one is going to ask you to whip out your passport and be like, oh, hey, I'm actually from wherever. And so, you know, those things affect me. And then it's interesting because being in um, being in school again and then also I'm a part of this other organization called the, the Global Shapers under World Economic Forum. 
you see how some of these different institutions are structured in a way to not to not even to not even give fair representation to black people and it's it's kind of frustrating sometimes and it's a different fight that you have to take on like me talking to my talking to different faculty and administration at my school about different diversity and inclusion initiatives talking about how to how to speak about these issues how to have these conversations that everyone else is uncomfortable with having but black people have been uncomfortable for hundreds of years living in America it's just it's very frustrating it's it's constant work and constant education and then even sometimes I find myself having to re-educate myself because somebody can't be out there speaking more about these topics (laughs) than I can be um so I don't know it's 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 weird and um at the end of the day, I mean, it is it is what it is, and it's something that needs to be acknowledged and it needs to be addressed. So, I mean, the history of Liberia does have some roots in America. There's counties in Liberia that are named Virginia and Maryland County, which come from America. But it's definitely a blend of cultures because then you have a lot of people who immigrated to Liberia from Sierra Leone or from Guinea, especially because we share borders and vice versa. And then you have a lot of Lebanese people there, a lot of Chinese people there because of, you know, this modern day colonization, if you want to call it that. And um, it's a small country, but it's a very interesting country and it has a very interesting history because um, even having Ellen Johnson's relief as president prior to George Weah, she had a lot of um, huge ties with um, with the U.S. and received a lot of uh, international acclaim. Uh, the president before that, Charles Taylor, he uh, was well known in the international community for a lot of things he did. Then the president before that, um, which is when the coup happened, Tolbert, he was known by the international community as well and was like the last president who really had the country in a position to progress um, and to be um, on par with a lot of these other developing nations. So. I don't know. I could talk about the history of Liberia and a lot of yeah. uh, a lot of the No, it's all so fascinating hours. to me. Um, I think Liberia is unique in in, in that way. Um, but thank you. you. You didn't think you had a lot to say, but you actually shared quite a bit that was helpful. I think so. Thank you. Um, so. As we're wrapping up, I want to find out what's next for you. You talked about the summer accelerator program that you were in. Like what? sort of is the outcome of that and then what what are you going to be doing next? Yeah, so the outcome from that, I, I worked on, on Mishan Spices through the Summer Accelerator Program and it's basically about teaching entrepreneurs how to scale businesses. And so I learned a lot about, you know, financial modeling, venture capital, pitching to investors, um, developing a go-to-market strategy, all sorts of things. And so I'm very grateful for that experience because I can take those learnings and, you know, grow this company so that it's able to live on um, even after I've graduated. And so in terms of what's next for me, I'm I'm going to be focusing on Michon Spices. I'll still be doing things with Tolbert Hospitality, but um, not as much given COVID and my comfortability level. Um, being at GW as an MBA student, I've been able to work on several different consulting projects that involve food in Africa. And so my goal has always been to, you know, work with different different industries on the continent, especially that involve agriculture. So I worked on something in sustainable supply chains in Rwanda. I worked on a food exportation project with a confectionery company in South Africa. 
And so I would love to continue working on um, projects like that that kind of blend my skills in management, hospitality and tourism and culinary. And then what I'm learning from my MBA program to kind of bring bring everything together. Um, I definitely think I lead like this untraditional path, especially for somebody who's in an MBA program. And then just for someone in general, yeah. I tend to do tend to follow things that I like and enjoy, which is which is scary and it's a risk in itself. But I don't I don't like wasting time on things if I don't like them. I think that is a waste of my time. So yeah, um, I think that's I think that's a great philosophy to have. And if 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 COVID has taught us anything, it's about you know no one knows what's you know what's going to come tomorrow and so do the things that you want to do focus on the things and the people that you know you care about and and move forward so that's that's fantastic I I mean I thought I knew a lot about you before I interviewed you and I've learned so much more um I'm inspired actually I'm like dang I need to like step up my game a little bit here so um before we transition to the rapid fire uh, segment can you let people know where they can find you not just on your website i think you mentioned the website but uh social media handles etc yeah social media handles are tolbert hospitality so t-l-b-r-t hospitality that's on instagram and facebook mishan spices m-e-s-e-a-n spices on instagram and facebook as well if you want to connect with me i'm on linkedin dominique tolbert um you can find me there and um yeah, that's pretty much. I'm not. I'm not hard to find. I, I reply to people. <laughs> um, so cool. yeah, you can right. find me. So let's do our rapid fire questions. Um, um, so let's start. Coffee or tea? Mm, tea. Uh, dine in or take out? Oh, that's a good question. I like. I mean, I like dining in by myself. Actually, I love to like sit at a bar and eat and drink basically from the whole menu. Um, but other than that, takeout is cool. Okay. Um, this will be interesting. I wasn't going to ask this question, but because we talked about it earlier, I'm like, let me see what she says. Liberian or Senegalese jollof? Liberian. <laughs> That's not even the question. <laughs> really? Interesting. Okay. I thought you'd go. Okay. I thought you'd go for Senegalese, but okay. So it's a very um, close second. Uh, morning person or night person? Night. I, I hate waking up in the morning. I'm not a morning person at all. Savory or sweet? Savory. And then um, finally, your favorite African restaurant anywhere in the world? Uh, I mean, I, I love like eating at somebody's mom's house in their kitchen. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that's one of my favorite. That's probably the best. Yeah, I think that's the be- that's the best way to go. Yeah, that is the actually that's the best answer I've heard. Um, cool. All right, so we've come to the end of our conversation. This is great. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. I learned so much more than I expected to, and I hope that people listening did as well. Thank you for listening to Item Thirteen an African food podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast app. To keep up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Item13Podcast. Item13 is powered by Simplecast.
Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.